Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years, sometimes single stories, sometimes whole episodes. Keep in mind that years ago, people might have worded things differently than they would today. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, an episode that premiered in July of 2011, it's an episode we call A Slippery Slope. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. That was Dan Rosen up top with one of my favorite Risk themes. This is Revolution Void behind me now. Our theme today is a slippery slope. Stories of times that things started out okay and then just kind of snowballed and spiraled and then smashed right into each other to create Spo-Rolled. They Spo-Rolled. Our first story today comes from a brilliant man who I do not know. I emailed him. Oh, holy shit. Did we have a great email exchange? I said, do you want to do the show? He said, yeah. And he did. Motion Cashers whole life is a crazy-ass story. He's writing a book about it, in fact. A lot of drugs, deaf parents, and uh, Orthodox Judaism. It's a... Well, you're about to hear the results. What kind of guy comes out of all that? Moshe told this story at our live show at UCB in Los Angeles just a little bit ago. We call this one... Winning... It's important for you to remember that for the purposes of this story that this was a Christmas slash Hanukkah themed show. That's important information. It will come in handy later. I had just gotten off stage. Obviously, it had gone very well because I've never had a bad set. And uh, I'm just kind of like sitting in the back of the room thanking God for the skill set that he blessed me with or whatever. And these two dudes come into the room and they're total jerks. They're like rifling through people's stuff and being assholes. They were just terrible people. And they were heckling the performer and I just, I hated them. And they decided to leave and my ego wouldn't allow them to just leave without me commenting on their behavior. So I decided that I would applaud their departure as if that was going to teach them some lessons. You know what I mean? Like, oh, we're glad you're leaving. Oh, you know what? I noticed you clapping and it really made me do some thinking. I need to make some major behavioral changes. Not what happened. The guy turned to me and he was just like, suck my dick, motherfucker, or whatever thing a bully would say in that moment. Uh, like, you would have said that because you're a big person with the dick word. But, um... <laughs> 
I happened to be holding a dreidel in my hand at the time because it was a Christmas slash Hanukkah themed show, not just because Jews have them at the ready at all times, just in case some shit goes down. But anyway, I just had it in my hand. Like, it was already cocked. The guy said, fuck you. What was I going to... What should I have done? I had to... I just threw the fucking dreidel at his head, which is like the most impotent, Jewy way to start a fight of all time. Take that, you fiend. Ha ha! I went like... I don't know what I thought was going to happen. Like, it was going to land on a certain letter and I was going to win the fight or whatever. That's not what happened. That's a Jew joke. Super good. Thanks for coming on board with it. But anyway, that's not... He was just like, come outside, damn bitch. And I was like, I think I will come outside for once, for me. Let's do this. I run outside. I run literally like this. I run like an anime character. I get outside and the guy starts punching me in the face. He just immediately... And that's the first thing you realize as an adult is, oh shit, I am fighting. I am fighting. I can't unfight. It's too late at this point. I'm already in the shit. I can't undo this. I can't... Oh, you know what? I've thought about the possible consequences, both moral and physical, and I've decided I'm not going to fight you after all. No, it's too late. You have to do something. So I'm not a trained fighter, uh, but <laughs> but I, I have watched a lot of UFC, which is almost the same thing. So somehow I like get the guy's head in th this area, the choke my choke zone, I will call it, for the purposes of this story. And I just fucking get into it. I'm like choking this guy, and I can hear him beneath me, just kind of like like choking. And I, normally I'm super into that, ladies, but. Um, <laughs> In that moment, I'm like, I'm gonna kill this dude. I'm gonna kill this per. I'm gonna kill him. So I say, I gotta say something. I go, Are you done? Because that felt like the right tough thing to say. And then, Are you done? And he popped his head out of the choke zone. And he goes, I'll never be done. I was like, Oh no, I'm fighting a knight. I'm fighting a knight, a medieval knight from the round table. He will never be done. He will fight me to the death. I will die in his arms tonight. But luckily, he quickly changes the subject of my impending sword doom by spitting blood all over my face. Oh, are you the guys not into that? Me neither! It's worse for me, because I'm already a hypochondriac, or as it's more commonly known, a Jew. I cannot deal with that. I'm freaking out. I just say, ah, back to the choke zone. Somehow his head ends up back in my choke zone. And this time, I just fucking really, I, everything I've got. And the guy reaches up and taps out. He fucking out. I was like, I know what that means. I release thee. Which is how you should always say it. If you want to be tough and assert your dominance, you just, I release thee. If you have like a three musketeers rapier sword, it's a good time to, I unleash it. Go. And then you can Nadia Komenichi backflip away while waving goodbye. The moment after I released him, though, I, I released an, just a flood. This is why it's a slippery slope, because you can't win a fight as an adult. You know, you think you can be tough. You can't. I, as, the moment I let him go, I just was flooded with this shame and remorse and guilt. I, I couldn't believe what I'd done. It was in San Francisco, in the Tenderloin. My shoes had popped off. I felt terrible, like I'm fighting. I kept thinking about my college degree, as if that was somehow connected <laughs> to why I shouldn't be fighting. Like, I just couldn't believe myself. I felt that feeling. You know that feeling you feel the moment after you come when you're with a partner that you definitely shouldn't have been fucking, you know what I mean? That horrible feeling, just like, oh, fuck, what am I doing with my life? Who is this beast laying next to me? And you just want to, like, push that person off of your bed, not to hurt her, but just to make her go away, you know? You want her to fall into a portal at the side of her your bed and pop up in front of her own front door, having forgotten the previous four hours of her evening. Like, I could have sworn there was an effeminate Jew somewhere in my evening. Never mind, carry on with my life. But I didn't even get to fuck this guy. I just had the shame and the guilt, and I ran up to the guy. I just go, I'm so sorry, I don't know what 
got into me. I apologize. I have a college degree. You understand. <laughs> he shakes my hand. He leaves. The bouncer just starts freaking out. He's never seen anything so noble in his life. He's like, I can't fucking believe it. These kids came out of my bar. <laughs> they attacked one another. At the end, they just shook each other's hands and walked their separate ways. There is a God. But for me, I just feel terrible and remorse and guilt. And then I realize, wait, I won. Like, there's somebody here who's having a worse night than me, you know what I mean? Like, think about that. Think about that. You're in a fight with somebody. You're in his choke zone. He's choking you out. You tap out. He releases thee. You look up, and it's fucking me looking back at you. Hey. I'm sorry. I have a college degree. You guys, we're going to have a lot of fun tonight. That's about all out of me. Thank you so much. is risk that was cack madafaka <laughs> cack madafaka k a k k a m a d d a f a k k a with a song called restless and this is tortu supersonic behind me now next up Another person I have never actually met face-to-face, but I am pretty sure I have smoked his marijuana before. Steve Agee told this story at our show in Los Angeles. We call it What I Did for Love. My therapist says that I have an overwhelming need to be liked by everybody. And I agree with her, um, mainly because I don't want her to hate me for disagreeing. Um, No, but uh, you need to know that for this story. Also, you need to know, like Mosher said, I was on the Sarah Silverman program where I played a gay pot smoker. And the gay part isn't crucial to the story. It's the pot smoking part. Um, I've been doing stand-up pretty heavily for about seven or eight years now. When I started doing Sarah's show, I noticed this weird thing started happening where after shows, people would wait for me outside and want to get high with me. (laughs) Just strictly based on my character. And I was never, you know, I've smoked pot and I was never a big pot smoker 
until this started happening, mainly because I didn't want to say no to these fans. I, I was just caving and just being like, okay, please like me. I'll smoke your marijuana. And uh, after show after show, like people are always like, hey man, you, can I smoke you out? That's how it always is. Can I smoke you out? And I'm always like, yeah, man. So now I've developed this huge habit of smoking pot. I love pot. And uh, um, there's a comedy festival in Portland, Oregon called the Bridgetown Comedy Festival. It's fairly new. It's only happened like four years. I went up for the first time a year ago, almost exactly a year ago. I think because it was Portland, the whole thing of people wanting to get high with you after a show really went up to a whole nother level. Um, I was up there for a week, and it was people wanting to get high with me after shows, people wanting to get high with me before shows. Somehow they knew where all the comedians were staying. People were waiting in the lobby of the hotel to get high with me, and um, it was really a horrible scene. And not only just wanting to get me high, people were giving me pot. And I don't mean just a joint here, there. Like, Lots of pot, edibles, joints, bags of weed, every form of pot you can imagine. People would be like, hey, thanks for getting high with me after the show. Here's something for you. Like really a weird form of tipping or something. (laughs) And I didn't want to make them mad. So I was like, why? Thank you very much. I will take this. And uh, after five days, I really, I can't stress how much marijuana I had after five days. Like... (laughs) I had a, a backpack on me, one of those little Jansport backpacks that I would use to carry like my notebook and my, uh, my camera. I abandoned all that stuff from the bag and was just putting pot in my backpack. It, by the time I was ready to leave Oregon, I couldn't zip the backpack shut. I had pounds. I'm not joking. I had pounds of marijuana in a bag. And this was awesome. Um, <laughs> The one thing is, they flew me to Oregon. So I had a flight back. Um, I'm not an idiot. I wasn't going to get on a plane with a bag full of pounds of marijuana. But also, I wasn't going to leave pounds of marijuana in Oregon. So I had a friend who came up to Oregon. She flew up there. She had rented a car while she was up there. I approached her the last night of the festival, and I said, hey, you know what would be awesome? If you just kept that rental car, we canceled our plane tickets and drove back to L.A. And she's like, yeah, that'll be fun. (laughs) And I had the ulterior motive of, like, just getting all this pot back to L.A. So I was like, I'm never going to have to buy marijuana again. Like, this will literally keep me high for years. So she was like, okay, cool, we'll drive. So we canceled our plane tickets. We were about to leave Oregon, and I was like, there's one catch, um... I can't drive. My uh, license was suspended. I have a lot of tickets that are outstanding. I'm not supposed to be driving. So you are going <laughs> to do all the driving. It's like a day and a half of driving. So she's like, all right, whatever. It'll, it'll still be fun. The plan was to get to San Francisco the first night. And we were on course. And another thing you need to know is I'm not a good passenger. I love to drive, but I am horrible. I get motion sickness. And I found something that helped motion sickness greatly was pot. And so 
when we got to the first rest area, you know, on our journey, I, I went into my backpack, got a little baggie of pot and a pipe, and smoked some outside at this nice wooded rest area. It was quite beautiful. <laughs> and uh, then I put the baggie and the pipe in the center console, like in the armrest. This went on for, you know, the whole drive, and uh, it was great. We get to southern Oregon and the Siskiyou Mountains, which are the last mountain range before you cross into California. It's just up and over. That's it, and we're there. We're in California. Uh, The only thing was it started to snow in the mountains, and we get up to the top, and my friend was kind of freaking out. She's like, I don't drive in the snow. She's like, I don't know what to do. And it was about 10 o'clock at night, I'm like, she, she said, will you drive? Just get us out of the snow. Just get us down the mountain. I'm like, all right, yeah, yeah, that's fine. What's the worst that can happen? <laughs> so uh, at the top of the mountain, I get in the car. 20 minutes later, we're down the mountain, and we cross into California. No problems. I'm just looking for a rest area or a truck stop or somewhere to pull over where we can switch back now. So we're coming down the hill. We're on this really long straightaway, and I'm basically coasting at about 80 miles an hour. (laughs) And then as we're driving, we're talking, and I look, and I see a cop just sitting there on the side of the road. And sure enough, the red lights come on, and sure enough, I start having a horrible panic attack. (laughs) And uh, I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to go to jail. The severity of me having two pounds of marijuana in this car didn't hit me until... We were pulled over on the side of the road, and I was going through my head of all the, uh, okay, I know they sentence you based on the weight of the drugs that you have. And I have pounds of drugs. I'm going to prison if I get caught with this stuff. Oh, the other thing was, I'm going from Oregon into California. That's trafficking. Not only am I just picking it up from a friend down the street, I'm bringing it into California. People hate when you bring drugs into their state. Like, cops hate that shit. Um, (laughs) I watched the the shows on Discovery Channel. And um, so I'm, I'm sitting there really nervous. My heart's pounding. I'm like, I'm trafficking pounds of drugs. The Police aren't going to believe me saying, I just want to be liked by people. I couldn't say no. So, you know, and this is all for me. All two pounds of this drugs are this drugs. All two pounds of this are for me. They're going to nail me, uh, arrest me for intent to sell and trafficking. So I'm really freaking out. And my friend is very calm. And she's like, don't worry. You were just speeding. He's just going to write you a ticket for speeding. And I'm like starting to calm down. I'm like, yeah, yeah. He's like, can I see your driver's license? I give him the license. He goes back to his car. I'm like, yeah, yeah. He seemed nice. This cop seemed nice. He comes back and he says, can you please get out of the car? And then I was like, I wanted to throw up all over myself. (laughs) And uh, he takes me back to his police car. And he's like, put your hands on the hood of the car. I'm like, oh, fuck. This is how it starts. This is how it starts. I've seen Locked Up Abroad. This is how it fucking starts. And uh, he starts frisking me. And then he puts me in the backseat of the squad car. And uh, I'm like, what's the problem, officer? And he's like, well, you're driving on a suspended license. It's a rental car. He was really nice, by the way. He's like, we're going to impound the car. I'm going to take you guys to a hotel. And you can sort this out in the morning. I'm really sorry. He's like, it's the law. I have to do this. He was really nice. I can't stress how nice he was. So then he walks up, and, and I'm like, can I get some stuff out of the car first? And he's like, nope, you have to sit in here now. 
And so he goes and gets my friend, brings her back, doesn't frisk her, but throws her in the back of the car. He's like, so the car's going to come, the truck's going to come, tow your car. He's like, I'm going to take, we're near a town called Wairika, which is a population of like sad. That's what it is. There's like nobody there. And so there's like just a couple hotels. He's like, we'll take you to a Motel 6. He was being really nice and apologetic. He's like, what I can do, I'll go get your bags out of the car and I'll put them in the trunk of my car so you have your stuff with you. I'm like going, nope, we don't need them. We don't need them. Just leave them in the car. You know what? It's fine. Just leave them in the... I'm really like getting loud and like my voice is going up like two octave. No, we don't need the bags. It's fine. And he's like, nonsense, you need your stuff. You're going to a hotel. And he's really nice, and he's like, you know, sauntering over to the car. And so he starts getting our bags, and he gets her suitcase and her bag, and he's walking. And he's like waving at us, and he's throwing He's like, just a few more minutes. And then there was just this weird slow motion moment of him coming out of the back of the car, and he's got my backpack. And it was just like, I saw the whole thing in slow motion. He's just walking with the biggest grin on his face, and he's like pointing at us and smiling. And he puts it in the trunk of his car. I'm like, beautiful, I might get away with this shit. And uh, then he's like, uh, he's like, what else? Any cell phones or anything you guys need? And then I'm like, my cell phone is in the center console next to a bag of weed and a pipe. I'm like, nope. Uh, no, I don't, no, I, I have my phone on me. It's okay. And he's like, I'll just make one last check of the car. And I see him go into the car and I see, I can see just over the seat that he's in the center console digging around. And then he comes back to the car, throws my cell phone on my lap. He's like, let's go. I'm like, okay, not bad, not bad. We get to the hotel. He drops us off and leaves. We take our bags. First thing I do is take this bag of pot and throw it in the fucking dumpster like at the hotel. I'm, and my friend is like, what are you doing? I'm like, I don't want anything to do with pot for the rest of my fucking life. Um, that view would change later. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, so I threw it in the dumpster because in my paranoid head, I was like, they'll probably find something in the car later and come back to arrest us. So I'm getting rid of this. So then we get into the hotel and we rent a room and I'm like, hey, how about the fact that he went in the center console and didn't even see the drugs there? And uh, she's like, oh yeah, she's like, I took care of that. She reaches in her pants. When she saw me getting frisked, she grabbed everything and stuck it in her panties. (laughs) Like, she fucking saved my life. And uh, I was like, oh my God, that is amazing. She's like, here you go. I threw it all out the window. And um, the next day, she had a horrible time getting the car back because it was rented to her. And they're like, <laughs> dollar rental cars, like, why the fuck are you giving a car to a guy who can't drive? And she explained, we were in Wairika the whole next day trying to get the car out of impound. We got it, got back to California. I have since given up smoking. I, I, I smoke pot, but I will not smoke after shows. I don't accept pot from strangers anymore. <laughs> My life's changed a little bit. I, I, I've seen what just wanting people to like you can bring to your life. Like that was, I could have gone to prison just for being like, please be my friend. It's, uh, yeah, it was uh, a lesson well learned. Thank you very much, you guys. It's been awesome.
So I've always led a pretty low-key life. As a teenager, I had no interest in experimenting with drugs. I just had this like crippling fear that I would be that girl who tries coke once and just dies from it. Shortly after turning 26, I suddenly developed this addiction. I became addicted to chapstick. And I know how ridiculous this sounds. I just woke up one morning and upon my once daily swipe of my Burt's Bees original peppermint, I just sort of suddenly found myself reaching for the tube again only a few minutes later. And if I licked the chapstick off or if it like like became absorbed into my lips, like even a little bit, I would just have to reapply. And if I didn't, I would just start like licking, 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 licking my lips and I would feel anxious and, and I would feel sick. And then it was all I could think about until I got some more. Knowing that I, you know, had my stash around was really comforting. And when I put it on my lips, this orgasmic wave washes over me. But it's that shameful orgasmic feeling that I would feel when I was a teenager and I would have a date with a flannel body pillow and, you know, like reruns of Charles in Charge on my mom's couch. <laughs> um, I was ashamed. You could say I was ashamed of this thing. Growing up, I was plagued with facial tics and I was nicknamed no boobs blink face and I didn't have a lot of friends when I was younger and I was worried that this sort of chapstick addiction, I, I didn't want to be shunned now by my grown-up group of friends for, you know, for sort of being labeled as a, the girl with the weird thing for chapstick. So I felt really self-conscious using chapstick around them and I would like sneak into the bathroom or, you know, kind of lean down to tie my shoe and like get a quick fix of like my bomb buddy. So on business busy days while I'm like running around a lot. I'll only use chapstick maybe like 25 times. But on days when I'm like sitting in a coffee shop working, you know, just sort of stagnantly sitting with a stick right in front of me, I will mindlessly swipe like one to 200 times in the period of like eight hours. Once I watched the movie uh, 127 hours and that night I had this nightmare that I was Aaron Ralston and I was trapped, you know, in the cavern and my arm was pinned beneath the boulder. And in the dream, I was absolutely terrified, not because I was going to have to cut my arm off, but because I hadn't brought any chapstick to the canyon. Once I was traveling on a bus from Manhattan to Massachusetts, where my family lives, and I had one stick of chapstick in my purse. I still don't know why I only brought one. And at one point, I don't know, it was maybe like 90 minutes into the ride, I took the cap off of the chapstick and the head of it popped off and then like in slow motion, it landed on the floor of the bus and just rolled. So I have this like decapitated piece of, of bomb just rolling on the floor and I just jumped up and I quickly grabbed it and it had like rolled in all of this dirt and grime and I picked it up and I was like oh damn it and I used my fingernail to sort of just kind of scrape the top layer off you know so I kind of got all the dirt off and I was like whatever so I decided I'm going to use it and I go to raise it to my face and just as I'm about to press it to my lips I see it a small black curly hair sticking to the side I was about to put some stranger's pube in my mouth. This moment raised a red flag for me, and I decided to do a little research to find out if anyone else had this weird chapstick addiction like I did. So I found this website. It's called Lip Balm Anonymous. It was started by a man named Kevin, who in 1995 found that he was addicted to chapstick. And he wanted to get some help, so he turned to friends who use the popular 12-step program, you know, found in Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. And in three weeks, he kicked his habit, and then he started a website about it. 
So I'm like clicking around, I'm looking at the website, and I learn on the site that chapstick addiction sort of happens because when someone uses a lot of chapstick, the body stops producing the moisturizing agents, like natural ones, so the lips will just dry out without the help of chapstick. And then other people, you know, sort of cite like this, like a psychological need for the ritual of covering the lips. And I think that mine was sort of a combination of both, but I was happy and sort of, I don't know, I guess a little comforted, as weirded out as I was. I, I was, I did feel comforted that there were other people that were kind of going through it as well, I guess. So on their website, there's also this test to determine if you're addicted to chapstick. I answered yes to a lot of the questions. One of the questions was, has the use of lip balm interfered with your job? And at the time, the answer was no, but soon I would hit rock bottom. So I had been stuck on ChapStick for like eight months. And at the time, I was working at this large advertising agency. And on that day, we had this huge pitch with some important creatives. And if the meeting went well and they liked our illustrators, it could mean that they would bring more work my way, you know, which could, you know, someday maybe lead to a raise. So I get to my desk and people are kind of trickling into the meeting. So I grab my notepad, my pen. And I reach into my canvas bag for chapstick because I always like to have a stick in my pocket during meetings. I find it really comforting to have it so close. Uh, but there's no chapstick in the bag. So I open my bottom drawer where I keep my work stash, but it was empty. And then I see this post-it note stuck to the side of my computer. And in like large, bold letters, it read, urgently get more chapstick. So this like wave of panic sweeps over me as I just sort of run through a mental Rolodex of just meetings and digital training sessions and creative briefs. Like it was gonna be a crazy day. I wasn't even going to have time to pee, let alone like leave the building to go buy chapstick. So, you know, this meeting is going on and the creatives are talking and doing their thing and I'm sort of, you know, smiling and taking notes and trying to act all the world like someone not about to have a panic attack and it starts happening. I feel my tongue just like dart out, sail across my lips. I'm licking, I'm licking, I'm licking. But now my lips sort of feel like they're drying out. The licking isn't helping. So I start chewing on the fleshy, sort of on the inside of my mouth uh, to the point where it starts bleeding and I'm tasting blood. And I'm starting to feel sick and I'm like sweating and I'm dying and these guys are talking and I'm just trying to smile and like be cool. And then, uh, one of the creatives asks me, he's like, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm fine. And he's like, uh, you're kind of breathing like my cat when she's choking on a thread from the throw rug. Uh, you can step out if you need to. And I'm like, okay, this is my chance. They're, they're giving me an opportunity. They're practically telling me to go get my fix. So I'm like, you know, uh, my stomach is um, a little upset. You know, maybe I'll, I think I'll just go get some Pepto and I will be right back. And I just sort of slowly walked away. But then as soon as I turned the corner, I raced out of the building. Like I race like when you run at pigeons when you're trying to scare the shit out of them. And I ran down the street to Dwayne Reed and they have a stack of Burt's Bees at the front register. So as soon as I got there, I just threw it on the counter, swiped my card. I run out, I removed the protective strip and I just applied the shit out of that chapstick. And it felt good. <laughs> The instantaneous relief of like the nausea and the anxiety and the sweats and everything, it was comforting, but it was also really frightening because I'm like, what is becoming of me? This actually has become a problem. I need to quit chapstick. 
I need to find a way to get it under control. You know, I kind of had that moment of acceptance. So I get back to the meeting. I sit down with my notepad pen. One of my illustrators is showing like a slide of work and I'm like ready to be fully involved in the presentation. And everyone is just staring at me. And I'm like, oh, they must be concerned about my well-being. So I like pat my tummy and I'm like, oh, I got some Pepto. I'm feeling so much better now. Thank you. So now I'm feeling alive and confident and moisturized. And so I give my big presentation and I just nail it. I mean, these people are captivated. They're still kind of staring at me, but I'm thinking that, you know, they're like, wow, she is really pulling through the stomach ache and being totally professional and awesome. She must really care about her job. So it's great. So once the meeting is over and the important creatives have left and everything, uh, one of my illustrators comes over to me and he sort of taps me on the shoulder and he's like, um, you should maybe think about looking in a mirror before going to your next meeting. I noticed it as soon as I walked into the bathroom. From the corner of my eye, I catch a glimpse of my face in the mirror. My mouth and its surrounding area is just completely caked with this like chalky white substance. I look like I had just shoved my face into a bag of cocaine is what it looked like. So I hadn't noticed it on the label when I was like frantically throwing it on the counter at Dwayne Reed, but there in these like big, bold red letters, it said, Lifeguard's Choice Weatherproofing Balm. So I bought those little white sticks that you like put on your nose when you're a lifeguard. And I had rubbed it all over my mouth. So by now I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> What do they think? <laughs> By now, everyone at that meeting is like formulating their own opinion of what I excused myself to go do. You know, did she walk into the back alley for crack? Did she blow someone for crack? Do we really want to work with a girl who blows someone in a back alley for crack? But I like wasn't sure what to do. Because like if I tell everyone, oh, uh, I'm addicted to chapstick and that's why I left the meeting and I, I lied about it, then they would just think I was a crazy cokehead who wasn't good at lying. But I didn't just need to admit my chapstick addiction to them. I really needed to admit it to myself. So I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to go out there just to my illustrators, just the four of them, and I'm just going to tell them the truth. So I go over to them and I look at them all and I say, guys, I have a problem. And surprisingly, it felt really good just to like get it out finally just say something to someone I just didn't have to live with it by myself for so long this doesn't have to be a secret I mean these aren't just my co-workers they're my friends and then this janitor just walks by my desk and he points at me and he's like you look like a fucking idiot and the healing process began A slippery slope is like, uh... Oh, when you poop on... <laughs> <laughs> when you poop, 
You diary on the slip and slide that's on the hill. That is a slippery slope. That you is, cannot oh walk up God. that shit. It is fucking diarrhea oh bill God. anywhere from here. Let's, let's say it. I will say some shit. That's it for this go-round, folks. We're going out with a track called Merry Make It With Me by the Republic Tigers at therepublictigers.com. Folks, today is the day. Take a risk. <laughs>